Eric. Jake. Still think it's a bear, Eric? That's a bear trap. That's a bear trap. Why is there a bear trap? Because I'm trying to write a parody intro, and I couldn't think of any podcasting analog. Smell that, Jake? It's bacon. Are you crazy? We're not in the same place. We're recording this over the internet. How could I smell what you're cooking? The bear trap was a sound effect you added. So I'm out of ideas. What do you think we should do for the intro? The intro to what, Jake? The podcast? We don't need a clever intro to every episode. Remember our last episode? I didn't write anything. Just apologize to our listener for that mess. Could you please just do a little writing? What am I writing about? I don't know. Parodies? Script stuff? You're the writer. I am not a writer. I'm a creative. Look, Jake. There ain't one damn podcast on this whole internet that doesn't have someone trying to do something clever for the intro. I could ask a hundred people on our timeline alone, and half of them would have their own clever intros, and the other half just play music. Shit, most of them are gonna have both. Even the 500 years of hard science hasn't turned up a single person who cares. Not one single person. That's what we do, you know? We fill in the silence with clever intros. It's human nature. We've been letting our imaginations come up with noises in the silence since we were given iTunes. And we always record clever intros. Will you two shut the fuck up and start the fucking podcast? Ooh, that bacon I smell? See, Nick gets it. And welcome to a very special episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, and joined by co-host Jacob Jones Goldstein. Monkey farts and all. And Nick Leamy. It's a gorilla fart. Get it right. <laughs> so this episode will be coming out on Valentine's Day 2022. And not a holiday I particularly care about, but we're using it as an excuse to do a movie we very, very much love here on the podcast after midnight. Hey. Oh, hold on, hold on. You don't like Valentine's Day? I send you candy and flowers every fucking year, and you don't like the holiday? <laughs> Where's my candy and flowers? I send you lingerie every year. It's not my fault your wife confiscates it. <laughs> That's where it came from. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> now, Valentine's Day is just this massive, you know, commercial conglomeration, but I still like the excuse to get flowers, so. Was that a hint? Should we get you flowers? Send me flowers! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't care about Valentine's Day, but I, I figure, you know, I shouldn't punish my wife because I'm a fucking misanthrope. So it's fun. <laughs> I think the important thing in these situations is to find the person who's the highest level and then just meet it. <laughs> I feel like that explains our podcast a little bit. <laughs> no. Well, because that wouldn't be highest level. That'd be the other way. <laughs> <laughs> we, we reach Eric's comedy. We reach your your critical, you know, approach and, and my fanboyism. So, yeah, it all balances out. Well, I, I think this movie is all our turns to be fanboys because this is very just much so much one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years. Yes, very much. So we're going to just get right into this review. We have a guest on here who I'm so excited to talk to. Before we do it, just as always mentioning, this is a full spoiler podcast. 
as we mentioned up front, we're going to tell you to see this movie. If you haven't seen it, it's currently streaming on Shudder. So go check it out. Come back, give it a listen. And here we go with the review. So for our review of After Midnight, we are very, very excited to bring on a very special guest of the pod. She is a member of the North Carolina Film Critics Association, a horror journalist who's had bylines on Nightmares Conjurings, uh, F This Movie. She's written for Dread Central, where she's also hosted some of the Dissecting Horror panels on YouTube, Scream Magazine, most recently Daily Dead. And she's a big fan of this movie, as you can tell by her having a poster for this movie in her living room as of a couple months ago. So Woo! we are so excited to have on the podcast, Michelle Swope. Yay! Yay! Welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm impressed that you know about my poster from my living room. <laughs> follow you on Instagram. So yeah. <laughs> How are you? Good, good. How are you? Uh, excited to be talking about this movie and excited to have you on here. You know, we've been following you on Twitter for a while and it's... It's actually particularly fortuitous timing you being on here because I know you you tweeted recently you've got an upcoming project about Wes Craven and we're kind of smack dab in the middle of doing a whole retrospective on the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise so it's rather perfect and certainly excited to discuss this movie with you another a bit of kind of fortuitous timing coming into this recording is we're recording this a few days after the premiere of Something in the Dirt so the movie oh. we're about to talk about is the very first official release with of the rustic films branding and we're coming hot on the heels of the latest release of rustic films or its premiere at sundance oh yeah it's almost like we're big on rustic oh i love that yeah, we, we are basically the rustic films propaganda podcast at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and proud of it yeah you could definitely do a whole podcast just on rustic they're fantastic easily and we have several <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's right. You guys have had Dave on. Yes. Uh, yes. So we first we released our eighth episode where we covered Justin Benson, Aaron Moorhead collaborations. Uh, so the three feature films that were out at that point because it was pre-synchronic and then also their Twilight Zone episode, uh, which Dave then basically. And and VHS. Oh, oh, well, yeah. Bone Storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so not the whole thing. We just did Bone Storm. But yeah. And yeah, Dave messaged us when he found it. And he basically live tweeted his experience of listening to that episode which is close to five hours so that was our introduction to dave and then, then we had him on we had actually just recorded our she dies tomorrow episode at that point and so he was gracious enough to offer to come on for an interview and which was just phenomenal he is great oh, he's yeah. so great he's such a hoot he is he's, he's come back for our lake mungo episode yep uh and hopefully we'll have him on again before too long yeah, Dave's great. And yeah, I'm, we're certainly going to talk about his work on this film, and which which f particularly funny too. Again, in conjunction with something in the dirt, because these are both examples of what I have in my notes as couch forward releases from Rustic Films, which is both very couch centric. It's a, with it after midnight. This is a movie that the inception of it was the image of the couch in front of a door in conjunction with other things uh, that were going on in Jeremy Gardner's personal life. But that yeah. image of a couch barricading a door was kind of first and foremost. And then a couch is, it's not the central image of something in the dirt, but it's a, a recurring one. And which, as they mentioned in the Q and a, all the couch sequences are basically, you know, Dave Lawson holding up this couch. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if you watch the behind the scenes features on after midnight in one of the montages, there's footage of Dave Lawson inside the couch when it's been toppled over. So yeah, a lot, a lot of Dave and couch on this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I never really thought about that, but you're right. And I need to thank you on that note, Michelle, because you had tweeted over the weekend that you were rewatching after midnight. You were rewatching your special edition release. Yeah. And which made me go, wait a minute, I've got the bare bones Blu-ray is a special edition. Wait, that was a narrow one. Wait, I own that and never opened it. So, <laughs> Oh my gosh, nice. it's great. Yeah, I've got it uh, here now. So I finally just over the last few days opened that up and went through the bonus features on that. And, and they are fabulous. Yeah, they really are. This was a fun one last year we watched. I guess it was around this same time. It was around Valentine's Day. They did the live stream is probably the wrong word. It was uh, the Amazon viewing. It's kind of a live chat along, basically. With the chat yeah. room. Hmm. Yeah, we're putting this episode out for Valentine's Day 2022. And yeah, the movie's very much got a history with Valentine's Day. The Its initial wide release after the festival circuit was on Valentine's day, 2020 yeah. a year later. That's how we spent Valentine's day. 2021 was in the, the live chat along with Dave Christian Sella, Jeremy Gardner and uh, Bray Grant, uh, which I, if I remember correctly was all done via Amazon, yeah. which was a tremendously fun time. And then a couple months after that, there was the USC school of cinematic arts live stream with everyone I just mentioned who was back. And that was moderated by, Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane of the Colors in the Dark podcast. Oh, wow. And it's a really good, like, two-hour Q&A, and that's on YouTube. So if anyone's listening and hasn't seen it, we'll link to it after this episode goes up. It's a really terrific Q&A. I haven't seen it. I would, I would actually like to see that. So. Oh, it's tremendous fun. Yeah, it's you get to hear a lot of Dave reinforcing his love of ham steaks, which comes up pretty much every time after midnight comes up. I should mention that in conjunction with this recording, I honest to God had a ham steak for breakfast today, but knowing that this recording was coming. So that one's for you, Dave. I look forward to, to DMing a picture of a ham steak tomorrow. Um, and yeah, it's really fun just watching the dynamic of the whole group. I know when they announced the team that was involved with after midnight, I just, was so excited because I mean, I call it a dream team, you know, mm-hmm. you put together mm-hmm. yep. Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson and Dave Lawson Jr. And with Jerry Gardner, and Chris Gisella, I was just like, I mean, if, if I could put any group of people together, it would probably be those people. Hell like yeah. seriously. That, that group of folks is responding. You're throwing Bria Grant responsible for like it feels like 70 percent of my movie viewing in the past couple of years me too <laughs> like i just i just randomly will throw on battery as a you know a comfort film or Endless yes. or, so good yes mm, you know I, what was the the one brie grant was in this year lucky the one she directed lucky. Which was very good she, yeah which she wrote yeah. yeah so just just possibly talented group of individuals yeah, we'll probably bring it up later um, when we mention Bria Grant's performance in the movie. But yes, yeah, she is a terrific writer as well. Uh, we've actually mentioned on previous episodes, since we're comic nerds, if folks are listening to this and haven't checked it out, she wrote a really good zombie miniseries for IDW called We Will Bury You, which she co-wrote with her brother Zane. And then I haven't read it yet, but she has a young adult graphic novel out called Mary, the Adventures of Mary Shelley's great, 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 great granddaughter. Oh, nice. <laughs> which sounds terrific. Well, I think I saw that on the show. I didn't realize she wrote that. Now I have to go to a comic shop tomorrow. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah. I was going to eat lunch tomorrow during work and everything. I guess I'm not now. Nope. Hit the shop. She is so wonderful. I had wanted for years and years to interview her, and I finally got to interview her last year. It was just so was that so the awesome. as part of the dissecting horror series you did for twelve hour shift? That well, that was something else. Yeah, I, w- I moderated the panel for twelve uh, hour shift, and Brea was there. But I interviewed her uh, for Fantasia. 
to talk about okay. Lucky and 12 hour shift. So yeah, I got a double dose of Rear Ground last year, which was awesome. Yeah, I saw the 12 hour shift dissecting horror panel you did, and it was terrific. Oh my gosh, that was my very first panel. I was so nervous. <laughs> oh, you did great. I was no, so it nervous. Was great top to bottom. And that was pretty much right after I saw the movie, because if I remember correctly, it was pretty close to when it, it first hit VOD. Yeah, yeah. Great movie. That's one I, Such I a haven't seen yet. It's on Hulu. Oh, is, is it? it now? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I very, very, very much enjoy 12 hour shift. I'm, I'm really looking forward to finding an opportunity to talk about that on the pod at some point. Oh yeah. It's I have a really fun list, movie. Yeah. Now that I know it's on Hulu, it's probably this weekend. Yeah. It, it's on Hulu. It is. <laughs> so had you seen the, the battery first or was after midnight, your introduction to Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella? Oh no. My husband and I discovered the battery a few years ago on shutter Oh, um, nice. We nice. came across it and we we're like, what's this? And who are these guys? We just fell in love with it. And then we started researching the movie and Jeremy and Christian. And the thing that I am always stuck on is the fact that they made that movie for $6,000. Yep. It's amazing. I mean, that just blows my mind. Even years later, it still blows my mind. I just love the fact that they got that car for like 600 bucks. Yeah. And it died where you last see it. Yeah. Like that, 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 exactly. last, that last scene, that car never moved again on its own volition. Yep. <laughs> it's the film version of dying with your boots on. Yeah. Yeah, it was. My husband and I just fell in love with them and, you know, started trying to find everything that they've done, you know, which at that time hadn't really been a lot. Um, Tex Montana is <laughs> a, lot, a lot of fun. Tex Montana, not a horror movie. But still, no. <laughs> so much fun. Well, kind of. I mean, you could maybe. Well, it depends on how you feel about being out in the cold, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. could make a case, given the, the general arc of the film. Yeah. <laughs> My power bill was $200 this month because I've had the heater running nonstop at like 70 degrees. So I being out in the cold that much feels like a horror film to me. <laughs> that is true. That's true. Yeah. And I it, actually, that text Montana comes up briefly as part of one of the Q&As. It might have been the USC Q and A, which we rewatched for this, and yeah, and talking about battery being made for six thousand, I think you said Tex Montana was only made for fifteen hundred. Yeah, and that's not surprising. That's like the cost of a camera and tape because it's basically him <laughs> a camera and then a, a prop, which I won't spoil what the prop is because it's the last shot of the movie. But it's... and then after that, they put it up online for free, which was yep. so yeah. awesome. Yeah. I just all the time. I mean, my husband would tell you that I. When I, you know, start talking about them, we talk about them a lot because we're <laughs> such big fans. And I'm always saying, why isn't someone throwing money at them to right? make movies? It drives me crazy. It's mystifying. I know. Because like, you look at Tex Montana and it's it's just him on camera and it, he's got such incredible charisma and physical mm -hmm. charisma yeah. that it's just, I mean, you know, he holds your attention for that. And that's not easy to do. Yeah. You know, even in this movie and... After Midnight, a lot of it is just him brooding, and yeah. it's still wildly entertaining. I can safely say I never like have to settle my seat during a Jeremy Gardner film. I'm just there. I'm, I'm yeah. enthralled <laughs> by the entire thing. That does pretty much go for his entire filmography. Yeah, like if you look at like Sadistic Intentions, Fingers, uh, which is probably going to come up because the second assistant director on this movie directed that. So even the Stewart, the Stewart cake. Shoot, now I'm forgetting the name. Robert Cake. The Robert Cake. You know, he, he holds the camera in that bags. Yeah. Bags. Like, and he shouldn't in bags. Like, that's the, like sub-student film, and it's still wildly entertaining. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to watch everything that Jeremy Gardner does. If I hear Jeremy Gardner, I am there. 
Yep. <laughs> I am yep. there for whatever it is. <laughs> but yeah, I just get really frustrated. And, you know, I see filmmakers having, you know, studios just throw money at them who are not very good. And I'm not going to name any <laughs> James Wan. Oh, wow. I don't know. No, <laughs> wow. let's, not, let's not go there. Come on. That was <laughs> mostly for Eric's benefit. I, I like, I really like him. But, you know, I see it all the time and it just really drives me crazy that no one is throwing money at Jeremy Gardner and Kristen Stella to make movies. It, I don't understand it. Yeah. It breaks my heart. Yeah, me too. It, it really does. I guess Jeremy tends bar a lot now. He is too, he's like a bartender in Florida, which he hates. They hate Florida so much. And, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, yeah, I know when I talked to them, they were talking about how much they hate Florida. And I lived in Miami for 10 years. and I loved it. <laughs> but they're like, we're not oh, in wow. Miami. You don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I've never been to the part of Florida where they are. <laughs> but the way they described it, it sounds pretty unpleasant. Yeah, but he's down there tending bar. And uh, I know when I like open my Instagram, you know, he's posting stuff. And he seems to be happy, you know. He's just living his life. But uh, man, I wish somebody would give him some money to make movies. Sacks of dollar bills. That's, yes. that's what he needs. Yeah, I'm I'm really hoping we, we get another feature here soon. I know he's starring in another movie that I, I guess is coming out sometime this year called The Leech, which is from Eric Pennykoff, the writer director of Sadistic Intentions. Is that the one that Graham Skipper's in? With yes. Him? Okay, yeah. Yep, don't know too much about it, but I saw the cast listing. I saw that Graham Skipper's in it too. Yep, yep. Graham Skipper's another one. If I hear he's in something, I'm gonna watch it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so hopefully that'll be sometime this year but yeah i'm i'm I, jeremy has mentioned in i think he mentioned in the the recent usc q a and stuff that he's been tinkering with the script at, at various points so whatever that is i i would love to see him you know writing and at the helm of something here before too long oh me too well you know it, he worked on the script for after midnight for six years before he made the movie and uh you guys probably already know it was originally called something else Mm-hmm. which I personally like better. I think it goes, mm-hmm. I think that goes better with the movie, but it's not my movie. And I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to, you know, I love Jeremy. So he can call it whatever he wants, but <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong. I got the impression they liked it more too. It was just kind yeah. of a, out of the, just the necessity of marketing, I guess. I'm sure. Yeah. I, I'm sure that's, which that's is a bummer. Exactly. Cause yeah, I, I agree. I think it's after midnight's a fine title, but yeah, I, I really like something else better. Yeah, it just, with Brea Grant's monologue in the film, which is so amazing, Mm -hmm. it just fits, you know? She explains, you know, why it was called something else, basically, in that monologue, you know, that she thought maybe he was looking for something else, you know, wouldn't be happy with just her and and she, how she gave up her life in Miami to be with him. Yeah, I just happen to like the original title better, but yeah, it um, premiered at Tribeca in 2019. And that's actually when I got to see it. And, oh, nice. Uh, yeah. And, and I wrote a review for Dread Central. And then I interviewed Jeremy and Christian. Nice. At the same time. So, yeah, that was that was something I've wanted. As I mentioned Brea earlier, when I finally got to interview her twice in one year, I had been wanting to talk to Jeremy and Christian for years as well. So that was like a dream come true for me. And they are so funny. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to keep reeling them <laughs> back in, you know, they get off on these tangents and, and they're just so hilarious to talk to. Just great people. Very funny. So, yeah, that was kind of like a dream come true to me to be able to cover that movie for its world premiere. 
Yeah, Jeremy and Christian together have a really great dynamic. I, oh, I think yeah. we mentioned this back uh, when we covered the battery back in episode 14, but for anyone who might not have listened to that episode, uh, Christian is currently running a Twitch channel uh, under the handle of Muted Star. Initially, it was predominantly food making and taste testing with his wife, uh, Elise, who also worked on After Midnight. They still do that, but I think it's also more of a gaming Twitch at the moment. But yeah, so anyone hasn't checked that out, it's a really fun Twitch channel. So it's Muted Star at Twitch. So definitely check out Christian's videos. And then Elise also has her own channel where, where she does a lot of live streaming for The Sims. And that one's under the handle of Star Child with two R's. Yeah, I just remembered something that reminded me that Christian being on Twitch. I did a dissecting horror last year for Hellier. Uh, have you guys seen Hellier? The- Not yet. Mm-mm. Oh, it's so good. You've got to watch it. Um, but Christian actually like came into the, was there and <laughs> asking questions. And someone like handed me a note and was like, Christian's television. And I was like, oh my God, Christian. And, and the Hellier people didn't know who he was. So they didn't know why I was. <laughs> freaking out you know <laughs> so it was kind of a funny awkward situation but i just thought it was really cool that he's a, he was a fan of hellier and he showed up for the live stream so that was nice yeah he seems in- incredibly nice um you know yeah he, he, he tweeted us after we did the review of the battery so yeah just very sweet and yeah, it's funny um with his twitch channel one of the things that's fun about seeing him do all this food related stuff is he actually has quite a history with it because as he if you have the special edition blu-ray of after midnight one of the things that comes up in there is he got his start as a food photographer yeah because <laughs> he mentions on his twitch stream that, that his father was a ghostwriter basically for a lot of recipe books for celebrities and other people in the food world uh, so he then transitioned from food photography into cinema and after midnight what a wonderful example of how talented he is because this is a gorgeous looking film oh hell yeah. yeah absolutely it looks so good yeah i always think about how just kind of marvelously shot it there's a quote i i came across uh, from an old jeremy gardner interview about the battery where he mentions you know he thinks he could just write a movie about sitting on your porch and it'd be interesting and then a few years later you get this yeah i, yeah. I, I always think of that with some of the shots like the, there's that one where it's, it's him on the couch and it's just like a slow pan away mm-hmm. and just in the, you know, sort of in the, the gloomy darkness. And I, I always think about that when I think about just how well shot this all is like the, his use of both stillness and, you know, just the colors. And I, yeah, it's just, it's really impressive. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, can we talk about the monster? Because I, I happen to be yes. really in love with the monster in this movie. It's gorgeous. Yeah, well, to springboard us into the monster, Nick, do you have the production rundown? Because I definitely want to talk about who made the suit, and then that can springboard us into the monster proper. (laughs) All right, so as we've kind of discussed here, this is directed, written, edited by, and starring Jeremy Gardner, who you might be able to find in such films as Spring, The Battery, and Tex Montana Will Survive. It's also directed, edited, and cinematography by Christian Stella, who's worked on Fingers, The Battery, and Tex Montana Will Survive. Produced by Rustic Films, who worked on Synchronic, The Endless, Spring, Resolution, She Dies Tomorrow, and Something in the Dirt. Also produced by Kavya Films, who've worked on Mamangam. That's about it. And distributed by Cranked Up Films, who have uh, released such beauties as Extraordinary, which I loved, Nightmare Cinema, and Porno. All right, yeah. A couple other folks I'll mention just to piggyback onto that. Uh, One is... Before we move on to some of the other roles, what I'll mention is one thing that 
Jeremy Gardner doesn't get a formal credit for, but I, he probably should have, is the role of Snake Wrangler on the film. <laughs> because if you watch the, the special features on the Blu-ray, they mention at a few points that it was mating season for yellow rat snakes at that particular point, which and oh, they were no. all over that house. And there's repeated footage of just like looking at, you know, the house was a little run down. So there's, you know, bits of holes in the, the walls and whatnot. And they'll just track the camera over and you can see snakes just slithering through. Oh. So there's like three shots of Jeremy Gardner escorting snakes, you know, picking them up and <laughs> escorting them off the uh, the film set, you know, very gingerly. And as we know from the gag and synchronic, you know, with, with the, the bit about venomous versus poisonous, we know the, the fondness that Jeremy Gardner has for snakes. So just <laughs> another fun thing that comes up if you get the Blu-ray. Uh, we'll mention real quick, too, that the I'm sure Jake's probably got stuff on the music, but the score for the film was done by the band The Parlor, who also contributed songs to the film, but also contributed music to the battery as well. And if folks haven't checked it out, apparently uh, Jeremy Gardner mentions that they also apparently live in a haunted farmhouse, which I need to dig into more details <laughs> on that. But if anyone wants to support them, aside from just buying their music, they have a website called The Kirk Estate, where they make their own soaps. And I've actually Ooh. picked some of them up and they're great. So anyone who's looking for some new soap to try, it's thekirkestate.com. I have less about the music than you would expect from me, but I did enjoy all the hummingbird songs, which is like Leave This Town, which is one of the first ones played in the bar and yes. a few of the others. But we'll we'll get back to the, when we get to the karaoke stuff there at the end. Well, do you know, uh, is that the band that had the song? There's a song in After Midnight that's also in Something in the Dirt. And I had just watched After Midnight, which is why I caught it. And I was like, oh my gosh. We just watched that yeah. last night. What, there's that song. I didn't catch that. Yeah, yeah it's really and... kind of in the background and just kind of quick. But I don't know the name of the song. I'd have to look it up. But yeah, it, it just it's just because we watched After Midnight like the night before we saw something in the dirt. So <laughs> yeah, there's a song. I know, I know there's one that's in the battery as well as this. The Anthem for the Already Defeated? Yeah. That's a good one. Rock Plaza Central. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, crap. <laughs> now, I got, now I have something to look forward to when something in the dirt hits VOD, but crap. <laughs> I should have watched it again before the Sundance window closed. Yeah, I wish I would have had time to watch it again. It's one of those movies you need. You want to just see again right away because there's yeah. so much in it. Yeah, really good. Yeah, once that comes out, I'm going to probably watch that 15 times. I'm just going to take a day off and keep watching it. Yeah, I took a day off to do exactly that, but life got in the way because <laughs> so, I had bought a day pass for that the, the day of the second showing. I was like, I'm just going to watch the hell out of something in the dirt, but alas. Nick, were you able to see it? I'm, I feel <laughs> so stupid. So I read somewhere on like some tweet or something that like when you purchase the all day pass, it, it actually isn't all day. It's like it's like a five hour chunk or something. Yeah, technically true. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, OK, I can't watch it Sunday because of the kids. I've spent time with the kids. And so I have to do it Tuesday. OK, good. Oh, it's fine to watch around children. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, well, you know, Hannah, you loved watching all the Benson and Moorhead. My, my wife you loved watching all these movies with me. How's this one sound? And I talked about it. She's like, ooh, OK. And so I waited until like seven or eight o'clock to buy the ticket and they were sold out and i was very very sad uh, <laughs> i was not expecting them to sell out yeah because <laughs> yeah, there's only so many digital things you can have right <laughs> i was like what <laughs> i didn't know this was a possibility i'm so mad i'm i'm terribly sorry oh, i spoiled wow. there being a floating couch in the movie that for <laughs> 
And especially that that now I really broke the magic because knowing it's Dave Lawson holding up the couch. So, I look forward. But so the other two crew members I wanted to mention on After Midnight real quick was one we already mentioned, Juan Ortiz, who was the second assistant director, who's the reason they found the house. He was the production assistant on the Sam Mendes movie, Away We Go. And this house was used in the finale of that film. And so he's already familiar with it and, and introduced it to Jeremy Christian and Dave. So. Really? I always assume they just looked up local murders and then <laughs> found one. <laughs> No, no, no. It was it was wonderful. And sadly, and not to be a downer, but yeah, the, the house sadly burned down uh, July of last year of 2021. Yep. Oh, that is sad. It's actually saw that via Jeremy's Twitter feed is where I first saw it. So, yeah, it was it was built in 1861. It was a 160 oh. year old home. Oh, my oh, gosh. Wow. The pandemic takes no prisoners. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, very sad. To circle to the last crew member. So speaking of the effects, at least the creature work in it was done by. Todd Masters, yeah, uh, who's done a lot of stuff, but I'll mention the one thing that Jeremy Gardner <laughs> cared about because it's a movie he, he absolutely loves, which is Demon Knight. Todd Masters did yeah. all the creature work for Demon Knight. <laughs> yes, I love that movie so much. As does Jeremy Gardner. He has a t-shirt of it that he sells. <laughs> I don't know if his store is still up, but he had two t-shirt designs and one of them was a Demon Knight one, which I picked up. That makes me happy. But yes, Todd Masters did the suit. Uh, the, the base of it was basically a kind of a base of a werewolf costume that they had kind of floating around pre-hair being applied. And so then he, he customized it, you know, the head and then the frill that was added onto it for reviewing with Jeremy and Christian. And it, it made for a great design, like Michelle mentioned. It's, it's such a nifty look. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely like they just didn't hold back. They gave it all the frills and the coloring, and it looks so lifelike. It ah, uh, drool. <laughs> I want to own it I so bad. I honestly think it's my favorite movie monster, which really? might sound silly to some people, but I am so in love with this monster. It, it looks so organic. Like you, you feel like this is something that could have grown in the Florida swamp. Yeah, land. exactly. <laughs> exactly, it does. It really does. Real quick, I know that was the designer. I know the guy who was wearing the suit was Keith. Are both not who um, I really enjoyed in Resident Alien. He's also been in some X Files and Falling Skies. He does good work. Yeah, and you can see some footage of him kind of behind the scenes on the Blu-ray. Yeah, he he does great work in it. And yeah, I, he delivers a fantastic flying tackle. Yeah, he does. Yes. <laughs> a former linebacker. But yeah, the, the design for this, for what you were just mentioning, it, the locale is so intrinsic to so much of this film, and and so striking that the fact that they could physically incorporate that into the creature design, you know, where you actually, it, it's so interesting to have like palm fronds mm-hmm. actually built into a creature yeah. design as, as a main slash frill. Yeah. Um, but it makes so much sense. Cause it would be like camouflage. Like yeah. it, would, it would be hiding. Oh, I love it. Yeah. It, it's definitely got a predator vibe to it. Yes. Yeah. Especially some of the, like the comic ones where they're, they really kind of get wild with the designs. That's, mm. that's what it always made me think of a little bit. Obviously not the mouth and the snout, but the headdress and all that. But it does make me think of Florida. So It does. It definitely does. Like you said, it feels very organic. It really does. Uh, I have to say every, I don't know even know how many times I've seen this movie. Like it's a lot. And every single time I watch it, when the monster shows up during karaoke, it scares me. <laughs> yep. I, I always know it's coming, but the first yep. time I screamed, the first time I yes. literally screamed in my living room. The first time I saw the movie. That it was 
perfectly executed oh, because yes. the entire party, <laughs> you just feel your tension rising. And he starts singing the karaoke song. You're like, oh, this is this is perfect. This this would be a good time. And and he gets through the whole damn thing. So at the end, I'm just like tearing my own fingernails out, waiting for this to happen. <laughs> and then BAM! And oh yes! I, I still remember my reaction when I watched it the first time and he he's, you know, three quarter almost 80% of the way through the song and I'm just really kind of digging that and then the monster attacks and I I just cheered because it felt like one of those it felt like at that point it's like well they're going to do the thing where the monster was all in his head and it's not real and blah 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 and then it tackles him and I was like yes yes thank you so much well so <laughs> speaking why, of that why we're talking about it me first ah. <laughs> uh, this is going to be our community connection uh, okay, I was hoping so. Uh, okay. Because, of course, what they're singing is Stay by Lisa Loeb. And Lisa Loeb, who, as we've discovered previously, was on Community. She was in the, the one of the season six episodes where she plays Julie, the lead singer of the band Natalie is Freezing. Of course, Natalie not being the name of the actual artist in it because they're artists. So once again, for the second time, Lisa Loeb is our community connection. Yay! Second time. I, sounds like cheating to me. <laughs> well, that's fine. <laughs> it can sound like cheating to you he does a pretty good job singing it too not bad like he's certainly better than say justin benson's singing moment in this oh my oh no. if i oh recall my. correctly from an interview or such they go out of their way to sing house rising sun badly because if you sing yes. it badly it's a folk song and free right yeah if you sing it like the animals you're going to get charged right <laughs> And, and I think while that's also true, it also feels like an excuse. <laughs> that's how Justin and Aaron justify singing in the films, even though that maybe oh, it's not their strong suit. I don't know. I would love to go like that. That We're going to change our podcast name to kind of like the uh, I want to go to the zoo with Roy Halliday. Used to be a big Phillies blog. We're going to go. I want to go, go singing to karaoke. karaoke with Justin, Justin and Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my new goal in life. Let's hope they have a karaoke night at Ye Old Rustic Inn, the, the, uh, where they got their name. Or, or at Vinny's Bar. Oh, yeah. So bringing it back to the monster. Of course, we're a spoilerific podcast, so I'm just going to roll right into it. Oh, this. yeah. We're just assuming everyone's seen the movie, so. Yep, absolutely. Except Randy, who's probably hasn't seen it while he's listening to this. But sorry, Randy, you didn't care anyway. Uh, I was very happy and excited with the way they play the creature's appearance with her disappearance. It very much for a good portion of the film to me felt like they might've been playing up like a shapeshifter angle. Like somehow it oh, was. Yeah. yeah, that's what I and thought she, too. And she transformed and, and some manifestation, you know, while being an analogy to problems in their relationship, it was a physical representation of what like, has happened. Somehow she has changed and they have changed in conjunction and then that wasn't it at all. <laughs> and for some reason, I loved the crap out of that. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. It's still an analogy, but we are actually dealing with a complete side plot monster at this point. <laughs> yes. Or or it could have been the cat, as Henry Zabrowski. Oh, yep. <laughs> Henry Zabrowski has a hilarious bit where he's talking about cats. That is so funny to me. You ever see a panther? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, this is one of the, the very few movies where the cat dies that I... I forgave the movie for it. It's like this in Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. And beyond that, I mean, I that's not a long list for me, but this one, I'll, <laughs> I'll give it to him. It's mostly off camera too, which helps. To be fair, the cat, to yeah, be fair. It's, it's mostly, to be fair, it's mostly off camera, right? You don't see it, so. 
it's more implied right the thing that amuses me about that sequence because it's not a funny scene that's but is the in the lead up to it that's a sequence that's lit entirely by shotgun blasts yeah and, and so he cracks off three shots and then you hear the cat meow and then it, the cat gets attached by the creature. So, but so the cat's in close proximity after three shotgun blasts. So it's like that cat was conditioned <laughs> from being around Hank <laughs> that shotguns were not a oh shit flea moment. It was like yeah, this is that cat was acclimated to close gunfire. Yeah. <laughs> it had to be because my cats would have been out of there. There's no way. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, there's not a lot of evidence that he can ever hit anything with that shotgun. Speaking of the shotgun. It's actually a really great beginning. I love the way this movie starts. So it starts with Abby and Hank, you know, having one of those perfect days, you know, the kind like in, in a relationship, you always remember that one day. Like for me and my wife, it's the time we got snowed in when we were first dating. It's just a perfect memory of a time together. And it's when they're, and he introduces us to the house. And then it hard cuts to like, boom, baby, boom. I'm the after midnight shotgunner with shotguns after midnight. Uh-huh. There's a pow. <laughs> <laughs> Just right off the bat, you know, like hard juxtaposition. And it really kind of right up front tells you what this movie is going to be about. It's going to be about the relationship. It's also going to be about, oh, shit, here it comes. It does that a few times. Yeah. It's one of the elements I really, really dig about the film is is just the overall structure. Like like one thing we were talking about was we were talking about the climactic sequence with the you know, the karaoke scene and the jump, the big jump scare with the creature. And I had forgotten going back and watching it, how the opening shot is an inversion of it, mm-hmm. you know, because the opening shot is Abby, the Bria Grant's character, you know, with this ominous drone, dead center frame, you know, and just all these ambient things they can do to play up dread. The ominous drone, there's random radio static, which becomes diegetic in the sequence it transitions to. But initially, it's just off-putting and disorienting there's you know they boost the sound on you know miscellaneous florida insects and then got a real west craven swamp thing vibe that opening shot yeah very much Mm -hmm. and then hank does a jump scare on her and comes if i remember correctly he comes at it from the opposite side of the frame so i thought it was i was like oh i completely forgot this opening shot is basically an inversion of the ending and and then all the flashback sequences that we get to the kind of the i guess the sunnier days of the relationship and they all have kind of a i don't know soft focus on it but they you know they deliberately play up the lighting on it a bit and put a bit of haze on it for whatnot and every time they come out of that it's there is a jarring transition out of it yep for some way shape or form you know it's him falling off the couch or shotgun blast or something like that so it's not you know, simply it just kind of stops or something the mechanics at which they go in and out of those are very, very well put together, particularly the first one, because we get the sequence with Abby, who's reaching orgasm, and, and right as she's crying out, it cuts to shotgun blast, and that's the yeah. bit of transition. I was like, well, that was close. Yeah, the, the transitions in this movie are just perfect, I think. They're absolutely perfect. Absolutely. I like that it just, he, he consistently does the same thing where he eats, it's essentially lulling you into complacency and yes. you know, maybe that's an allegory, you know, for the relationship and, you know, lulling you complacency and then she's gone, but it, it feels like he keeps doing it and you keep falling for it every time, you know, even at the end with the Lisa Loeb song, it's like, you know, all right, this is going to be over <laughs> after a verse. Okay. Two verses. Oh, we're getting the whole song. Bam. You know, it. they just keep doing it. And it, it's so 
effective because they're not really well i guess the last one's technically a jump scare but they don't really feel like jump scares they're like wake up pay attention yep each yeah. time mm-hmm. my my favorite of them is probably the one with the cat where they where they, you know she gets the cats the kitten and you know they're all really cooing about it and then the hard cut to the car and him shooting at the car and swearing <laughs> <laughs> because that one you jump and then you start laughing and i really enjoy yeah. that because you don't really get many laughs jump laugh scares <laughs> yeah that's true and uh that reminded me of something that Jeremy Gardner told me when I interviewed them, I, because I asked about the way that he puts humor into his movies that I think is so interesting, aside from the fact that he's very funny, just oh, yeah. mm-hmm. not in real life. He's just really funny, really funny guy. Natural charisma and charming. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, but he said that he likes to, you know, you look at a depressing situation, he likes to try and find some kind of humor in it. And he's like, you know, somebody could call you and tell you, you know, that your grandma died and you'd be all depressed. And then, you know, the next minute something happens and he said, that's just how life is really, you know, he explained it better than I just did, but no, that was great. <laughs> yeah. but, it's good. It's good. Yeah. He said that that's, you know, life is hard and it's depressing, but you have to try and find those, you know, humorous little pieces you know little things that happen find the bright lights hidden in the dark yeah 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 and yeah it particularly appropriate too because from what i understand it like he he was in an emotionally kind of rough place when he first started the script yeah because um, like when he first started writing it was he was in his previous relationship and and he mentioned that he was in a position kind of similar to what the crux of this movie is which is when you're in a long-term relationship and you realize you might be in a kind of a, a turning point in in the relationship in terms of the give and take of both halves of the dynamic and he mentions that he was kind of in a rough spot so yeah it was the you know being able to find the humor in that while one of the things that i dig so much about the film aside from it having such a sense of intimacy in a bunch of different ways but in particular too is it, it very much feels like you know from the creator's perspective very much that willingness to to look inward as far as you know, it really feels, you know, Jeremy Gardner's willingness to really get into, you know, aspects of himself and aspects of honest aspects of relationships that you don't necessarily see covered in movies very often. So that's something I really, really appreciated. Yeah. That's the thing that is so that I, probably my favorite thing about Jeremy Gardner is that he is so brilliant at writing stories about relationships and creating these characters that just feel real. They feel like mm-hmm. real people everything about it just feels authentic it feels real you know and he's like you just said he's not afraid to go into the you know maybe more difficult aspects of you know whatever he might be going through himself at the time you know and and just everything just feels real and relatable the characters and i just absolutely that's brilliant to me i mean not everyone can do that that's why I'm saying throw yeah. some money at this man, <laughs> please. <laughs> you know, I just, yeah. yeah, he's just so good at writing relationships. Yeah. And that really, really comes through in the, in the big, the big money scene where she's back and they're sitting, you know, with the door open, he's got the gun on his lap and it's the, the long one take scene. Yeah. 14 minutes. It's like 14, 14 minutes. minutes. Yeah. yeah. But it's, yeah. it's so incredibly lived in. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel like you know it's obviously wonderfully acted but it doesn't feel at all acted it feels like an actual couple you know they have certain mannerisms certain things that get left out because they don't need to be said certain things that are said because they need to be said finally and just 
the way they interact, the way they move in that scene, even though it's largely still, like you said, it feels incredibly real. It feels lived in. It feels authentic. Mm. And it's not the kind of scene that a lot of films get right in terms of feeling a lot of, you know, can make him, you know, really dramatic high points and really, you know, tug on your heartstrings and things like that. And the sort of the emotional, not the emotional payoff, but the emotional arc of it. And in this one, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel put on. It doesn't even feel written. Nope. Yeah. It just feels right. He has this beautiful transition where he's starting off from a point of self-righteousness like, I've been wronged. How can you be a person who would do this to me with what we have? And then she just slowly unloads the truth of the matter and the, her honesty and, and who she is and what she's given up for him and where she's at now and what she wants. And you can just watch as he just, that, that self-righteousness just slowly fades and dies and he realizes just how selfish his choices and lack of actions have been. And it's so perfect and it is raw and open and honest. It's a brilliant 14 minutes of film. Oh, it really is. And um, the other thing I really enjoy about this movie and kind of his work in general is one minute you're crying literally in tears. And the next minute you're laughing. Yep. Yep. (laughs) It's just, you know, not, not everyone can do that take you through so the, the first time i saw this movie i thought it felt like an emotional roller coaster but in a good way mm-hmm. you know because it just took me through so many emotions i could relate to the characters they felt like real people you know i felt for them i cried several times and mm-hmm. i laughed really mm-hmm. hard you know had a really good scare at the end and yeah i just felt like i had been you know on, on a roller coaster but you know in a, in a good way like i said absolutely and i laughed Every time Wade was on the screen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wade, <laughs> Wade cracked me up to no end. Uh, Wade is played by Henry Zabrowski, yeah. who uh, listeners may know from A Comedy of Errors, Volume 1, Cut, Shoot, Kill, and Return to Return to Nukem High, a.k.a. Volume 2. <laughs> he's He's got one of my favorite lines in the film, where it's after he's drinking the gorilla farts. Oh, my God. And I ask him, what does oh. it taste like? It tastes like going blind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite line of his isn't in the film. It's it's on the outtakes. On the, there's a deleted scene where there's a karaoke scene in the bar, and and someone is up and they're singing the song "Ain't No Grave," and there's a series of alternate takes that are supposed to be the camera pushes in and catches Wade as he's sort of saying stuff to Hank, and I guess they told Henry to just wing it as as he goes. And they show like four of these takes and he keeps making Jeremy Gardner crack. But like the fourth <laughs> one, his his lead in line to the song is this guy singing Ain't No Grave is just what a beautiful song about graves. And it's, he gets one <laughs> sentence in and, and Gardner cracks. <laughs> but the rest of them, Gardner can make it like four or five lines in before he breaks. This one is what a beautiful song about graves. Done. <laughs> just... Yeah. Jeremy Gardner told me a funny story when I interviewed him about how he got Henry Zabrowski to be in the movie. And I came across it when I was looking over the interview last night and I had forgotten about it. And uh, I just laughed all over again, but Jeremy originally wrote, was writing the story thinking that he would play Wade Hmm. that he would play Hank. And then it was someone else said, no, you, you need to play Hank. And he wanted to get Henry Zabrowski, but he didn't know him. 
And so he said he was watching. Have you guys seen that show, The Core, that's on Shutter with Nikki Keating? Came out a few years ago. Uh, really I've heard good. of it. I haven't seen it. It's really good. I highly recommend it. Um, it's very good. And Henry Zabrowski was on there as a guest, and Jeremy Gardner saw this, and um, he had this weird like connection because he knows Mickey Keating, <laughs> and he thought, you know, maybe I can get Mickey to reach out, you know, ask Henry, and and yeah, he just went through this whole kind of hilarious story about, um, and then Aaron Moore had got involved and said that Aaron had gone to school with Henry, and he like sent. Henry a text or something and said, Hey, I'm also involved in case you don't know these idiots, you know? <laughs> so, and yeah, there, there's a funny story behind that. Yeah. I found out recently they went to school together. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, Whoa, what? Florida, smaller state than Delaware, apparently. Well, no, and Jerry also said as part of that funny story about uh, how he ended up with Henry Zabrowski in the movie, he said that um, it was weird to him that a lot of the genre people are coming out of Florida. And he said, maybe it's because it's such a horror to live there. yeah that's yeah (laughs) probably sure that's probably very accurate yeah yeah henry's very funny in it i i will say that that my biggest laugh in the film actually comes from justin benson um, (laughs) who's terrific he's such a prick it's great oh my god (laughs) the way he delivers his lines is just so funny to me one funny side note for folk if you haven't seen the uh anyone who hasn't seen the usc live stream that, that we mentioned earlier at one point during it jeremy stops and he tells christian stella he says christian send me a text real quick as a christian and so you see everyone's in zoom so you see this in real time and so jeremy holds his phone up to the mic christian shoots him a text and you hear jeremy's phone go off and his phone alert is justin benson saying how are we doing Hank?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's his text alert every time he gets oh my God. <laughs> Um, and Benson's great throughout, but it's particularly it's during the Lisa Loeb sequence. Justin Benson's His expressions, oh, particularly so when awkward. everyone else busts into song and he's the only holdout. Yeah. It, it cracks me the hell up. Oh, I he's know. sort of like, so like oh, okay. <laughs> We're doing this, huh? He's got one of my favorite lines in the movie too. It's in the breakfast, the eat your fucking food scene. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's our imaginations draw faces on the noises in the dark since we were living in caves and we always draw sharp teeth. I love I'm like, that. That's line. a great yeah. wisdom line from this giant prick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's the kind of thing that makes him more two dimensional than just, you know, the asshole future brother in law. Mm hmm. Yeah, there's absolutely more nuance to him. Yeah, I had the same thought about him being a jerk as where it particularly came up it was in the final sequence. You know, when the creature shows up and everyone's like, where's your gun? He's like, I'm off duty. It was like, hey, Florida cop. He's not, he's, you got a gun. He's <laughs> like patting himself down. Oh, it's in my other pants. You know? <laughs> Let me get Shane. my brass knuckles. <laughs> Come on, Shane. Just want to throw in real quick, uh, back to the monster. One of my favorite bits with it was when he's asleep on the couch. And you just see the clawed fingers come through the hole. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> I I live for that kind of stuff. That made me very happy. Yeah, getting so much mileage out of just so little. Again, you know, this movie was made for. You know, I don't know the exact budget. You know, surely more than the battery, but not boatloads of money like we talked earlier. Boatloads of money is what Jeremy Gardner, Christian Stella should get, but you know, not necessarily what they had <laughs> for this film. But it's doing so much with so little and which was something they did so well in the battery and, and Tex Montana as well, but, but particularly the battery. And it, it's funny in, in everything we've been talking about how so many of the fundamental strengths of the film 
are everything that was evident in the battery just writ a little larger in terms of utilizing the budget. But just talking talking earlier about the the character dynamics and the overall sense of intimacy, which is you can put you know all the special effects and all the window dressing and stuff you like, but at the end of the day, with the right acting and the right writing nothing is ever going to be more effective than two people in a room talking, which is something I think the battery showed. And mm-hmm. and this movie captures that so well. You know, we talked about the monologue and whatnot. It's just, if, if you get that right combination and, and the right actors, it is just magic. And it's, it's so funny seeing them take kind of the, the fundamental core of the battery and just kind of rework it a bit in terms of their overall approach for this. And again, it was just, you know, lightning struck twice with both of them. Well, it's funny. It's one of the things I was thinking about when I was why I did my final rewatch last night is that I you know, I mean, I, I absolutely adore this movie. Yes. But I always kind of forget it a little bit because when, I, when I'm, you know, watching something or else I think about it, you, you think of like the highlights, you know, the, the monster jump, the, uh, you know, the 14 or 18 minute, however long it is, the monologue, the, you know, the, the, the car shotgun scene, the gorilla farts. You know, and I always kind of think of the highlights, but then when I watch it, I always get overwhelmed by all the in-between stuff. It's perfect. And it's yeah. like, I, the, what I always think about, or I was thinking about it last night, I was watching and just kind of paused it for a little while is it's, it's like a 15 second shot of just him sitting on, in the rain on the porch, you know, with the shotgun on his lap. And it's a pretty mm-hmm. still scene. Yep. And it, it's just so perfect. And it's so perfect to the, the mood, the vibe. The, the way that the film flows and that, and I, you know, I forget about that stuff. So every time I watch it, it's like seeing it, you know, these, these little details again for the first time and just being blown away, like the slow pan back when he's sitting on the couch, looking at blurry photos or, mm-hmm. you know, when he's hanging the, the deer head and the, the, was it this one's on in your head is playing. And, and it's the same thing with the battery. There's so much kind of in between. like, I always forget the scene of him dancing in, the battery and then i watch it and i'm like this is the greatest thing i've ever seen and his films i I, i'm just every time i watch him i'm I'm just a little bit more blown away at just how good he is and just how good these films are Mm. and in particular just the level of stillness versus violence versus humor it's such the right balance and it flows so well through the entire film i i I mean, I'm, I'm always a little bit taken aback every time I watch it. And I've watched it a bunch and every time. I, I feel the same way uh, every time I watch it. Your description of those scenes reminds me of one scene in particular where he comes home to the doors busted down and he comes in looking for it and it takes off out the front and he takes a shot and misses. And then there's this wonderful little moment of him reassembling the barricade, like closing the doors, putting the mm-hmm. couch in place picking up, you know, everything, you know, one cushion after the other. It's very slow and deliberate. And you're just kind of in that moment. And then he sits down and the couch just breaks under him and yeah. he breaks with it. It's, oh, my yep. God. Uh, it's so moving. I always think that scene wasn't planned. <laughs> I always think the couch just broke and they're like, oh, God damn this couch. And he just... <laughs> Based on what they were working with, not out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> yeah, it's entirely possible. It's funny, um, going back to something we, we kind of mentioned at the top as kind of shared DNA in some ways with something in the dirt, funnily enough, that kind of comes through is 
won't spoil it for Nick, but so, so the the end credits of something in the dirt is going to spoil the plot. But there's a dedication in the end credits, which is to and, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the exact verbiage, but it's dedicated to making movies with your friends. Yeah. And that's sort of you yeah. know that collaborative experience of, you know, getting all all these passionate people you care about together working towards something. And again, just to keep plugging the Arrow special edition Blu-ray. Uh, and again, Michelle, thank you so much for mentioning it. Otherwise, I oh, would want to miss welcome. this entirely. It's great. Uh, there's uh, one of the, the making of features. Just you can see everyone going around and and you know, you see Aaron Moorhead with a claw hammer cutting the grooves into the door. Dave Lawson painting the door. It just all the little bits. You see Dave, Dave sawing off an antler <laughs> with uh, there's, there's like four different th- tools they had to implement to get those antlers off for the finale. They use like a crowbar, Dave with a saw, all of this. And it's but just seeing all these folks and just seeing their dynamic on the set of this small crew all working towards this wonderful end product is so much fun to look at. Also, the movie gave me my favorite screen grab now, which is Dave Lawson with his head lulled to one side with the subtitle because it's captioned, Hamsteaks are my life. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to name this episode Hamsteaks. It's one of my, I have temp titles and <laughs> one of them is Hamsteaks and Peanut Noir. So Nice. So, so let me ask you this. This is something I actually was thinking about last night watching it. And it's the first time it really crossed my mind is when does this movie take place? Like nobody, it, it didn't occur to me until, you know, he's, he's always got the push button phone. You know, all the music is tapes and records. There's no, I, as far as I know, there's no cell phones. Well, I don't know. I just, you know, as the, the flashbacks they're they've got mixtapes. And I mean, I don't know. I, I think that's sort of an eighties thing, but that's what I associate mixtapes with. But unless you're a goon like me who still makes them, but that's uh, yeah, generally an eighties thing. Yes, problem. some people Here, do. Here's the problem: <laughs> it, he very much could be like in his forties, kind of like you know me at least. Um, you know, I grew up with mixtapes, and obviously they were around and could still be around when he meets her. But it could also be indicative of how he's just kind of trapped in the past. He's not moving forward. He's more than happy to stay stagnant yeah. in the world yeah. he's created for himself and yeah. not get the new phones, not get the new electronics, not watch TV. You know, he he's more than happy to hunt and drink the same peanut wine and just spend every night doing the same thing, which is very indicative of the problem and chasm between the two of them. And that that's what I thought, too. I mean, that's what I always kind of considered about it is that, you know, he was a bit of a throwback and that was part of the problem. But nobody else has him in this either. The only thing that's really kind of modern is the the karaoke machine. Fair. And even that's not like a modern one. If you want to get granular about it, I mean, there's the models of the vehicles, but like the truck he shoots at is a newer model vehicle. Now, it's probably just because that's what they had as far as whether or not it's artistic intent. Mm. I'm floored that you didn't notice the models of the vehicles, given how keen hawk watching you were doing on license plates throughout the four Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Well, that's because I couldn't figure out where that movie was supposed to take place for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you say that because it was one of those things when I, when I wrote that note, I was thinking about it towards the end of the film. And I was like, I gotta go back and check what the the cop car is because the cop car is not new. But then the one he shoots at, I'm like, well, I don't know what that was. And I meant to go back and check it. And until you just brought it up, I had forgotten to do that. But it still is one of those things. It's, you know, and I often like that when films have that sort of displaced in time feel. 
I mean, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change anything one way or another in terms of this. It just, it was an aspect of it I hadn't thought about until watching it this time. And the karaoke machine was the only thing that made me think it was, you know, anything. But it still feels like, if I had to guess, it's probably set in the late 90s. Possible. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be a deliberate choice and like like Nick mentioned. Or it could just like, be they were in Florida and that's what Florida's like. It's been a while I, I think, since I've been down there. Mainly just, <laughs> that's, that's Leesburg, Florida, which <laughs> which is titled uh, Barlow, Florida in the film. I don't know if that's a Salem's Lot reference or what. Mm, I hope but, so. But uh, Leesburg is where they shot it. That's where Wolfie's is, home of the ham steak. But, <sighs> but yeah, and also too, it, it, it could also just be indicative of like we were talking about with Jeremy Gardner's that's so character forward approach the movie is basically just jeremy gardner and a rotating series of scene partners where it's yes it's him and abby or it's him and wade or it's him and shane and you know scene with him and jane played by taylor um i believe it's pronounced zotke apologies i'm mispronouncing and much like tex montana he just carries it yeah and it, but it, and it's just very much it's the crux of this is just characters first. It's him and whoever else he is bouncing off of. And in that particular scene in every other trapping is, is very much secondary. Yep. I love that second scene with, with him and her in the bar. Yeah. Where he's got that look like, should I make a mistake? And she's like, I don't know about this. Let's see, you know, peace. (laughs) But it's, it's such, they have such a good charge in that. It's well done. It's such a setup though, for the conversation later in the porch. It's yep, proof absolutely that, yes, it is. he's been looking. He did, yes. Yeah, yes, yes, whether yes. whether he's done anything or actually seriously considered, there's a part of him that's, like, looking. And she's not crazy. This is happening. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's partly why I liked it. But I, I just really, I think they play it well without much dialogue that betrays any of it. Like, it's it's just a very, it's a very physically acted scene. And, and I thought it was really well done. No, it's not heavy handed at all. Yeah. If anyone's particularly keen on the dynamic between Jeremy and Taylor, they are both co-leads in a movie we mentioned earlier, Sadistic Intentions. They're the two primary characters in that. Like, Which is really good. Yeah. it's I, I just watched it this week as for, for this recording. And yeah, it's very funny. And basically, similar to this, it's like 80% just a, a pair of characters. And it's it's their pair specifically in that. So if anyone's looking for another film to check out to follow up on this one that's one to actually give a shot i believe it's currently on tubi too as of this recording so i have to give that a watch i've seen just about everything else he's been in it's a noble goal to do it uh it, not fingers because i am very much looking forward to your reaction on fingers <laughs> <laughs> i just love the premise holy crap fingers, fingers is, is an experience. very strange <laughs> yes <laughs> It is. I am so looking forward to doing that on the pod, just mainly to see how Jake responds. Oh wow! Oh, I'll, I'll save it for that. We'll we'll do that in the. the I, I'm gonna forget the name again. The Dave Cake, Robert, Robert Cake, Robert Cake. It's it. I wanted to say the Stewart Cake again, but I knew that was wrong. The Dave Cake is is pretty applicable because they they fit Stewart. in a reference to Dave in pretty Stewart. much all the various you know, rustic films. You know, there was we were smiling Dave, but there's there's another Dave reference in. Something in the dirt. So, which when that comes out, folks will see it. But yeah, I, that's, I, I, that's great. I was very amused by New Dave. Yeah. <laughs> so, let me ask you another question about this, and it's just it's another thing I was thinking about when I was watching it last night. Is I kind of think I might have ended it right as the monster tackles him. Interesting. Just monster tackles him. Hard cut. 
credits. <laughs> and I, which is not to say, you know, I think what he did is wrong. You know, and I, I like what happens after that you know, with the antlers and the, you know, and all that. I just. I Do you think it might have been cooler to end it there? It had been darker. Yeah. It'd been more nihilistic. You can you can make a case, but Bray Grant's smile at the end is so perfect. Oh, it's like, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. You, you can make a case, but you're probably not going to sway me on that one. That's the moment of redemption. It's the moment where he has clearly seen the error of his ways. He's going to make the effort. He's going to be the person he wants to be for her. And they're going to go off and make things work. And, and yeah, that's worth it. I, I think that that emotional payoff is well worth the ending. And I love that he kills the monster with the antlers, you know, yes! because yeah. that deer head, whatever it has a name, doesn't it? Valentine of all things. Yeah. Yes. Valentine that means so much to him, you know, that yep. she hates, but he, when she left, he put it back up, you know, that's so symbolic to me. I think when he ends up having to kill the monster with the antlers, I mean, yep. so yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I yeah, guess no, I, maybe ending there, but I, enjoy I, it. I, just... I, I, I like all the stuff at the end. So I, I can't imagine it without <laughs> i think jake it really comes down to what kind of movie you're trying to make sure you know if the movie if the movie is about the creature i honestly think that's a good ending that you have there but really the movie's about the two of them and i think right. you needed the ending it had yeah i i think i think it, it is it makes it a much nicer film like you said but yeah i i, I watched the graduate really young and I feel like it's it's kind of ruined me for endings for a long time. So so kind of to piggyback on that. So yeah. So your thought process in that is is it more for the surprise of the ending, or is it more of the notion of too little, too late in terms of his efforts to reconcile his failings in the relationship? Because that's exactly what it's saying. I, yeah, I I like it more how it plays in conjunction with the scene in the bar that's not too prior to that. Okay. Where he, you know, he watches her go out and, you know, he's making the eyes and then, you know, he gives a speech. He, he very much looks like redemption and then he gets tackled by this giant monster. And I like I like how that could play. Now, I like the more. Romantic, decent human ending, which feels <laughs> weird to say when he this is the ending where he kills the monster with the antlers and he's covered in blood as the more romantic ending. It's very romantic, but it's, it's just it's just a thought I had. And, and again, it, it does lend to my internal nihilistic you know stuff but i and i'm not saying the way that i like i'm not saying at all that i disagree with the choice and with how he right, ended right, right. or that I, I like it it's just what it was something i was thinking of that i might have done in fact i'm sure i would have done it now whether that's <laughs> right or wrong probably wrong but it's how i would have ended it i think well it's coming from you so it's wrong but that's beside the point <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm a. <laughs> I'd stick up for you, Jake, but you made a James Wan crack at the start, so you, you burned it. You burned your. Oh, I'm gonna do that on that one. That that's like the community connections, man. That that's just an every episode thing. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm just happy I stole the Mad Bomber reference today. <laughs> if we ever have James Wan on, I promise I won't do it that day. Yeah, we we're not gonna have that issue. I don't think. Given <laughs> how much bad karma you've put into the universe on that? Not likely. But no, that what you're posing about the ending though that that speaks to something i was hoping to get into because I, w one thing i was excited to get was so everyone you know aside from me everyone who's on this recording is currently in a long-term relationship of some variety and it's one of the elements of the movie that i think is so fascinating is that, that it's not just about well it's about a like a year-long relationship that was rosy and then kind of went south real quick you know they specify in the film you know justin benson gives the exact time frame where he says Ten. it's been a decade hank 
So it is very specifically about, you know, a long-term relationship and the evolution of that and, and life events causing you to kind of you know, reconsider things. There's at least what happened with Jeremy Gardner. So it's one thing I was really looking forward to was everyone's kind of perspective on that as people who are in long-term relationships. Well, yeah, my husband and I, we've been together for, I guess, 12 years now. So we're kind of close to that, the time that Abby and Hank have been together mm-hmm. in the movie when we saw it, you know. And so I think we could sort of relate to that a little bit, you know, for us. I mean, we, we've talked, we talk about it all the time because we're kind of obsessed with Jeremy Gardner and that whole group. <laughs> but um, I mean, yeah, as you know, I have After Midnight poster in my living room, but um. Yeah, we're kind of close to that uh, amount of time as far as how long we've been together and and can really relate to how much you go through a relationship in 10 years. A lot, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we, uh, you know, the fact that my husband and I always watch it together and I think relate to the characters and relate to their relationship, you know, even though we're very happily married at this point, but, you know, in 10 years, you can go through a lot of stuff. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. We we really relate to it on a personal level, I think. I, me and my wife have been, we started dating a little over 19 years ago. Wow. So significant time frame. And I can safely say it, relationships that go the distance 100%. That's a pretty good year for you. You met your wife, you met me. I, mean, that I was, know, right? <laughs> Twenty years ago was a land, land watershed year for you. <laughs> Shaped the rest of my life. One <laughs> for that, Eric. Yeah, so it'd be nothing but wins. Some for the good, like my wife, you. <laughs> anyway, um, and relationships that go that distance, I think, one hundred percent rely on communication. You have to be open and honest, and yourself. You can't let unspoken issues go and fester and hide and and become these small resentments that just grow and build. All they do is build up walls between you and and hold you back. And that that I felt a lot of that in that interaction between the two of them in this is that, you know, it's like they had let all this unspoken stagnation build between them and by tearing it down and actually talking and being raw and open to each other it just becomes they're refreshed they're renewed that initial love is rekindled and you have to periodically do that and this is their moment to take that another 10 years and hopefully have learned from this moment to continue onward i think it was very well portrayed and well done and very honest of how relationships work well if we're going to talk about that end of it uh let me let me get real for a second here buckle up now uh my wife and i have been together for a little over 20 years now we we got together in 2001 and then we got married 10 years later not unlike the characters in this film we got married in 2011 and i can say that the first 10 years were were up and down they were rocky they were hard and you have to like you said open honesty communication and all of that is important. But there's also a lot of the stuff that this movie talks about, which is what you're putting in, what your expectations are, what you're taking out of a relationship are all mm-hmm. different. And and what you the way you view the relationship isn't going to be the same way that your spouse views it. And a lot of what 
coming to understand each other and what relationships are really about, especially if you're in a long one like I am, is is learning to see through their eyes. It's empathy in it, but it's also understanding that you're not always going to agree with how they see things, but the way you see things and the way you see things are often going to be different, but that doesn't mean they're incompatible. Mm. And understanding that they're not incompatible is probably the hardest part of all of it mm-hmm. because it feels, it feels wrong. Like, you know, you see that this way, she sees it that way. And you know, the answer is, well, that can't be right. Except, you know, you're different people. My, you know, my wife was raised in Australia and Montana and I'm from Connecticut and New York and Massachusetts and stuff. I named all three for Dan. So if he actually listens to this uh, episode, to he'll enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's to me the, the hardest part. And that's what, what communication is actually about, but it's communication and understanding. And I can tell you, you know, there were, there were times where, where things got really rocky in those first 10 years. And then, you know, eventually they stopped being rocky because we both learned how to be ourselves with each other. And that's what a lot of this movie is about is she wants something different than what he wants. And they, they have to learn how to deal with those things, you know, and it ends with him saying, you know, let's, let's go. I understand now. And that's a believable thing. It's him understanding that she's in this relationship too. And I don't know, I'm rambling a little bit, but I I will say this, that, you know, I understand that 10 year part, you know, especially after 90 people, people ask you all the time. People started asking us three years in. And I, I had the luck of my brother also being in a long-term relationship before getting married. He, they went nine years. So people were like, yeah, he's probably still fine. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, but then we, you know, we got married and again, that was, a little over 10 years ago, it was in 2011. Both of my podcast mates here were, were in the wedding party too. Cause you know, when we talk about knowing each other for 20 years, those have been pretty good 20 years too. You're my boy, Blue. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'll say the last 10, the, the married ones, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard once you make that commitment because it's a whole different thing. But eventually, I, I don't want to say it gets easier, but you just understand the ride better Mm. it's like going on a roller coaster you still like the dips and the loops and all that but when you know that you're coming you don't feel like screaming as much and i think that's the point where this movie is capturing is is that switch where it's you know you you finally worked up the nerve to get on the roller coaster now you can enjoy the roller coaster for what it is which is a ride and fun and not scary and you know unless you're in playland it's not going to behead you so anyway and I relate a lot to this film when I watch it on that level. And as being a, you know, a, a modern American middle-aged male, I don't like getting in touch with the emotions I've talked about for the last, I don't know how long I've been talking. So thanks for that, Eric. You're welcome. Just what I needed on today. You know, at least the Sixers, if the Sixers hadn't beat the Lakers, man, I'd be in tears right now. So <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I, I, I can relate to this movie on a, on a pretty emotional level and i appreciate jeremy gardner for putting that out in the universe and everybody else who did not just jeremy gardner but you know he's the driving force so anyway yeah this is the episode we get real (laughs) (laughs) anyway play wonder will but no thank you thank all three of you for sharing all that appreciate it Way to set me up, Eric. God damn it. <laughs> I wasn't trying to. <laughs> now I can't even be mean to Nick for the rest of the episode. <laughs> Sorry, getting flashbacks to, again, as someone who's currently single, probably my favorite 
moment ever watching a movie with <laughs> with uh, my co-host uh, during our last horror weekend where Nick was like, what's this movie Possession that Eric brought? Let's watch that. And <laughs> <laughs> I get to watch this with a room full of married people. God, that movie. Wow. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that was that was a ride. But no, seriously, yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. I appreciate. It. Like I mentioned, it's it was one of the things I I really gravitate to in in movies is is that sense of an authentic human experience where it, where it really feels like you're giving a level of intimacy that a lot of creators just aren't willing to go to in terms of introspection or whatnot. So yeah, it's like we mentioned before, it's absolutely one of the strongest elements of this film, and it's hard. You know, that's not an easy thing to do. It's not. A, I, you know, I've as a very minor writer, it's hard to put something emotional out there. Like I've written, you know, my, my first published short story was entirely about grief, mm. you know, and, and a lot of it is wrapped up in, you know, things in, in my life. And it's, it's hard to put that out there for people to see. I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Jeremy Gardner here or anything in any fashion. I'm just saying I, on some basic level, when you put that emotional part of yourself into something creative and, and send it out in the universe, like I, it, it's just, hard and the way he did it in this then you talk about the rawness of it and where he was in his life it's it's all that much more of an achievement for that yeah i absolutely agree with that it's not a lot of filmmakers i think like you said are willing to go to that place you know with their work so that's another yeah. thing that i appreciate about jeremy gardner she dies tomorrow is one that kind of feels like that to me too where you're putting something so distinctly cut to the bone emotionally raw out there i can't even imagine yeah that's still one of my favorite reviews we've done is the she dies tomorrow one that's the review where i did what you did right just now so that, that was <laughs> that was my soul bearing tangent on that one long-term relationships got nothing depression oh i can talk about this um, but yeah it's it, it i just love this movie so much i, I can't really articulate it even better than that as, as a completely unrelated anecdote, I was at my mother's today. And I, if you've listened to the podcast, you've heard me complain about my 80-year-old mother before. But I talked to her about this stuff because what else are we going to talk about? And I mentioned we were recording tonight. and It was our Valentine's Day episode. And she said, you're doing a horror movie? And I said, yeah. She said, they have horror movies about Valentine's Day? And I said, Mom, they're all about Valentine's uh. Day. <laughs> <laughs> you going to show her Valentine to Jamie Blanks? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's in the name. And I, you know, and I kind of explained to her what this is about. And she says, that sounds awful. And I'm like, how does that sound awful? <laughs> like, it's this is barely a horror movie. I mean, it's a horror movie if you, you know, you can attach yourself emotionally to it. At which, of course, you know, we all do. And that, that's what gives it its power. But Someone uh, described it as the notebook, but with a monster. Yeah. Nice. That's, <laughs> that's pretty perfect. Yeah. What was it? Nicholas Sparks? Or whoever the uh... yeah, it was Nicholas Spy. I've never seen that. I've never seen any of his movies or read any of his books. I got so soured to him by when we were working at Borders. I was about to say we already mentioned earlier how we all know each other at St. Points because we all worked at a bookstore together. <laughs> and so yeah, a lot of just seeing Nicholas Sparks books on end caps and whatever. It's not a bad description of it. Yeah, and it's funny too. Yeah, and talking about genre classifications and going back to where we talked about the you know the climactic scare moment. It's like yeah, if you want to break things down into ratios of what percentage of this movie is, is designed about, you know, building a sense of tension or terror. It's on the low end, but very deliberately. So because it has probably the best jump scare of any movie 
the year it came out at the very least, if not, you know, yeah. even further back, you know, that the payoff to that karaoke sequence is great. Oh yeah. It, it really is. It's, I have, I have in my notes that it's the, the end scene of his speech, then the song, then the monsters like top six, all time payoffs in a film. And, and I, I, I don't know why I put six instead of top five. I think I was <laughs> just say that's awfully specific. <laughs> well, I, and I know when I wrote that down, I'm like, I'm going to have to give a list and I can't give a list. I'm just being hyperbolic here, but it's, but it, it is up there in terms of my favorite payoffs at the end of a film. Like again, if he had, if the monster hadn't come back and it had just been allegorical, I would have been perfectly fine with it. But like I said, I cheered when that monster came back. Cause it's like, it's that hereditary thing where it just keeps saying yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, it just it just keeps doing the thing that it says it's gonna do with that, and I I I always appreciate that. Like, there's a monster. Oh, I get it now. And then there's a monster. It's like, oh yes. See, you're you're actually uh, your description reminds me of uh, Drag Me to Hell. Yeah, I've never seen that. You will. <laughs> what I love about Drag Me to Hell is it's one of those movies where you expect it to be a a, a fake out. Everything is kind of like framed in what you would expect to be a fake out. And then it's just a punch in the face every time. <laughs> it's like, oh, here's the thing. Oh, it's going to be the wind. Nope. Pow. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I love about Hereditary, which we'll have to do one of these days, too. But, yeah. But just what a brilliant movie this is. Perfect. What a brilliant filmmaker. And what a crime that he's not just a household name by now. Oh, yeah. I, I, I try to talk about him as much as I can. I mean, at least on social media and. If I had the opportunity to tell somebody in real life, I'd do that too. But, you know, I just try to get the word out because, yeah, people, please throw money at Jeremy Gardner and Christian Salva. Yeah, please, please, please. Oh, damn my knees. Really the whole Rustic gang. Like, I, I feel like <laughs> mo- most of my Twitter account is just screaming the word Rustic in people's faces until they watch five movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everyone involved in, in in the Rustic crew. And it might be less of a problem for you know, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead going forward, depending on they how They got that go. Marvel money now. Yeah, now that they yeah. got MCU money. But. <laughs> I am so psyched for that. Oh, my God. It's funny. I was thinking about that the other day. I was really looking forward to Moon Knight, and then I saw something in the dirt. Now I just barely care, because now all I want is this to come out again. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, we, we're absolutely doing something in the dirt as soon as that hits VOD. Yeah. There's there's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> like I'm looking forward to Moon Knight. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, it, it, you know, I was looking to both of those things about the same, and now it's just like ah. Uh... It's kind of funny. So, and, and we'll probably get into this more when we actually do something in the dirt. And so I won't get into too much detail. But talking about Moon Knight, it's funny because what went through my head watching something in the dirt was referring to the movie as Rustic Endgame. Nice. <laughs> nice and and not in terms of like it being like it's a wrap-up for the you know the arcadian cinematic universe or whatever it's not that it's very much a continuation but thematically it ties so much together from the, the previous movies but also that it's it takes everything full circle to the core of what resolution was which is you know making movies with your friends yep. i can't really get into it in more detail but that was one of the things that kept going through my head watching something in the dirt so unintentional mcu parallel there but yeah very much looking forward to discussing that but in the meantime yeah this has been a movie that all three of us here at the pod love we've been very much looking forward to an excuse to discuss it here and even better to have the chance to discuss it with michelle michelle thank you so much for doing this thank you thank you so much for having me thank you so much 
Once again, big thanks to Michelle Swope for coming on the pod. I am so happy that she came on this podcast. It was so good. Yeah, it was so wonderful talking to her about After Midnight. So if you don't already follow Michelle on social media, I would recommend you go to her, I believe it's pronounced, authory page. So that's A-U-T-H-O-R-Y dot com slash Michelle Swope. So M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-S-W-O-P-E. So authory.com slash Michelle Swope. So that page has links to her socials, but it also has all the articles she's written, the YouTube streams we mentioned, the dissecting horror panels, they're all linked there. And just announced, Michelle is going to be doing a new column for Bloody Disgusting. So exciting. The name of the panel is Dead Time. And the column itself hasn't gone up yet, but there was an introductory installment of it that just went up where Michelle notes that the crux of this running series is going to be explaining her personal paranormal experiences and she's going to have various guests and whatnot and it sounds fabulous so head over to bloody disgusting to keep an eye on that and also when this episode goes up we'll retweet the article that's already out the introduction so but yeah michelle is fantastic and this was such a fantastic discussion and yeah i'm so glad we got to talk about this fabulous movie on our pod so good yeah i i'm especially glad that we we got to this because this is the last episode we're going to record and release before James Harden plays his first game with the Sixers. Because I'm just going to orgasm myself to death like Pierce Hawthorne on Community the first time he hits a three. So this is probably my <laughs> final sign-off. <laughs> Dear Lord. So it's appropriate that it's Valentine's Day. Even more appropriate for what we're about to do. So <laughs> this episode's coming out on Valentine's Day, and we have a follow-up episode that's coming out two weeks after this. Yep. And I'm going to go ahead and mention what that movie is, because it's a movie that's, I think, relatively underseen. And much like After Midnight, it's currently available on Shudder. And Amazon Prime. And Amazon Prime. (laughs) And would like to give people the opportunity to see it. So in two weeks, we're going to be following this up with a horror movie which has notable basketball content in it, which is Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker from 1981. Notable is not the word I would have chosen. <laughs> Potable? <laughs> In terms of like screen time, not, not quality. But... There is a fair amount of basketball in the film. Yes. yes. High percentage of basketball to overall run time. Oh, we'll talk about that on that podcast. Believe you me. I, I, do, I think this is the first time we've given people homework. Oh, I'm excited. Uh, <laughs> it's the first time in a while we've mentioned what the next one is. So, yeah. But yeah, so it's on Shudder. You can give that a watch. The plan is to put that episode out two weeks after this one, so which will be February the 28th. But you can just keep an eye on our social media feeds for more information on that. We're at Scary Stuff Pod on Twitter. We're at Scary Stuff Podcast on Instagram. And also, related to social handles, we now have a Letterboxd account. Yay! So you can go to letterboxd.com and with the username of Scary Stuff Pod, just like our Twitter feed. And we're going to be updating that. We've already updated our Letterboxd profile with all the movies we've reviewed so far with notes on which episode they're found in because a lot of our multi-movie episodes, we can't put all the movie names in the description. So this way, if you want to see if we've reviewed a particular movie, you can just look up the movie on Letterboxd, see if we've reviewed it. If so, the notes are going to tell you which episode it's in. We also have a sortable list of everything we've done. So it should be really nifty. So go follow us on Letterboxd. And also, since we haven't mentioned this in a while, um, if, folks want to leave us a review on itunes we'd really appreciate it that'd be great we'd love you for it 
All of our after midnight hearts. Hey, we might we might even read it in an episode if you if you leave a, <laughs> a good thing. We'll we'll start doing that. Oh, shout out! Yeah. If you, leave, if you leave us a new uh, review, the next episode we record after it shows up, we'll read it on air, or whatever this is. It's not really air on air. <laughs> it's on the air, and then it's not. <laughs> My longtime dreams of becoming a, of ever being a, a radio DJ are coming through here, but we'll 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 read it on the podcast. Good afternoon, scary stuff. <laughs> afternoon, like we ever record before eleven o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are our social handles. So it, yeah, if you don't follow us and you want to give us a follow there, that'd be great. Uh, like we mentioned, definitely check out Michelle's all three page and. Check out bloodydisgusting.com to follow Michelle's series of articles there for Dead Time, which is starting soon. But in the meantime, we're going to be back in two weeks with our episode on Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. It is connected to this episode in a really tangential and bizarre way, <laughs> which we'll explain at the onset of that episode. So we'll see you in two weeks for that. And hope you enjoyed our chat of After Midnight. In the meantime, this is Eric. Thanking you so much for listening and signing off. This is Jake saying Jeremy Gardner is a genius and James Harden is a sixer. Signing <laughs> off. And this is Nick Leamy saying, I love you all. How we doing, Hank? <laughs> Bacon! Ooh. Yes! Yes! Thank you so much! Oh, I love it!